The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Devotions with Bishop Dolan on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and as always, this morning, we have the great privilege of sharing time with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and we're going to have a conversation about the Catholic devotion to holy relics, which is a, uh, a most suitable way to end Season 2 of Restoration Radio in this month of November, the month of the Holy Souls. Devotions of Bishop Dolan is underwritten by True Restoration, and we encourage our listeners to visit truerestoration.org with articles, books, and videos available for purchase and direct download. And while a portion of the operating costs of the radio program are underwritten by True Restoration, our shows are truly listener-supported. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on blogtalkradio.com slash restorationradio and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration and all social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. And also, you can follow us by using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. Well, good morning, Your Excellency, and thank you for being with us. Good morning, Justin. It's my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here during this uh, month in which we, as you mentioned, also honor the Holy Relics. There's actually a feast day of the relics that was kept in certain places and, and found in the back of the Roman Missal. That feast day occurs on the 5th of November, and it's from the Mass of that feast day that I've chosen our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Do thou, O Lord, increase our faith in the resurrection. Thou that workest wonders in the relics of thy saints, and make us partakers of that immortal glory, a pledge of which we venerate in their ashes. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Queen of all saints, Pray for us in the name of the the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, Justin, it is a very interesting topic that uh, you have chosen for this show on Catholic devotions. As I was preparing the show, it occurs to me it's really not only tied with, but it's sort of a star performer in the whole world of apologetics. That is to say, in the explanation of the Catholic faith, apologetics whether we're talking about devotional practices, as we are on these shows, or the faith itself, the classic way of approach is to mention uh, and prove how, first of all, there is nothing in this notion that we are discussing which is um, unreasonable, nothing which is unnatural. Uh, And indeed, you find examples of it, in the case of relics, in secular history, human nature itself, 
elements are to be found certainly in false religions. And even in the modern world and in our own country, I'd like people to start with that consideration. That's where you find relics. For relics, for most people, they know what relics is a bone or a bit of a saint and something about the church having relics, and sometimes people get relics on eBay, maybe. That might be the average traditional Catholic's um, uh, understanding of what of what relics are, and that maybe that relics are on the altar or the altar stone. But actually, relics are... Uh, in some sense, a stock in trade, if you will, because of human nature, everywhere. American civil religion, eBay, our cult of personalities, people that are famous for being famous, basically. That's uh, historical figures. That's all connected with this desire to have something that was that belonged to something that was of a, a, a famous person. It's that's part of human nature, isn't it? So you find it in uh, yesterday, the anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. So people, what do they do? They go to the grave, right. or in the case of of Lincoln, you have um, a museum at, at the Ford uh, at the Ford Theater. You might you might see his top hat, or you might see some relics, in effect, of his blood. The original copies of the Constitution, carefully guarded in the Capitol of the United States. Um, uh, George Washington's uh, false teeth, his wooden, wooden false teeth. Everybody has, everybody has relics. Uh, uh, and then go, to go from, well, it's not the sublime, but at least the respectable to the ridiculous, Elton John sunglasses, you know, sold on eBay for how much money? I have a pair of Elton John sunglasses, somebody, right. some empty-headed uh, individual will say, and how proud he or she would be of, that, uh, of possessing that. So that's... That's what it's a it's a current theme. It's it, because it's part of human nature, and human nature, of course, as we know, never really changes. The Protestants don't do relics; they do in their civil American religion or daily life, but not as re- not as regards Christ and His saints, which is, if you think about it, weird. But that's one of the odd things about that particular um, heresy that they try to be entirely spiritual, which leaves mm-hmm. them actually not spiritual at all. But um, uh, the, and they would they they attempt to base all of their religion upon the Bible. Well, if there are anything that's based upon the Bible, it's the it's the devotion, the use, the respectful use of relics. You start with the Old Testament, and uh, later on in the show, I want I want to give you some examples of that. And then you move into the New Testament. You have first class relics, and you have second class relics used uh, or in the, and explained and honored in in both. Then you have the East, and then you have the West. Uh, you have, as I mentioned, the, the altar and um, the altar stone. Um, and uh, the, the desire that people have still today to possess uh, relics themselves. Uh, maybe we should start, Dustin, do you think, maybe with a, as, uh, with a definition. That's always a good idea. And the definition, of course, as I've been stressing in these shows, takes us to the Latin. How about that? Uh, the, the English word relic, which is used across the board by everybody, uh, if you're talking about a relic of the Buddha's tooth or George Washington's false teeth or somebody's or somebody else's um, some part of somebody else's body or the actual relic of the part of a body of a saint, it all comes from the Latin word reliquium, what is left, reliquium, reliquia, what's left of the, of, of the individual, in this case, of a saint, and um, uh, 
the use of relics, that which is left, that which remains, the devout use, goes back to the concept of Christian burial. That is to say that the the um, Romans had a big thing about that. You know, they part of it, the punishment did not end at death for someone who was sentenced to capital punishment. The the uh, the the bodies then were meant to be uh, treated in a dishonorable fashion, and so Saint Sebastian's body, for example, after he died twice for Christ, was was thrown into the big sewer, the Cloaca Maxima of Rome. Uh, and then Saint Irene fished it out and 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 took and honored the, the rocks. Many saints came from Persia, for example, Iran, to Rome, with the idea of collecting the relics of the saints after their martyrdom, giving them a decent and a proper burial. So that's a little bit the sense of it's the idea that the body is sacred. So this is against cremation or the scatter and the scattering of ashes we have in the modern world today. Body is sacred um, because this body was a temple, a living temple of the Holy Ghost. In the case of the saints, it's sacred because of their their own the sanctity, the holiness of these individuals who died for Christ. So the first example of relics that we have. Uh, after sacred scripture itself comes in about the year 100 with Saint Polycarp. And Saint Polycarp was burned for the faith at Rome. They, they say that um, afterwards the Christians came and they considered as precious jewels his ashes. And they collected his ashes. They were put in a certain place uh, of honor in a church. And there a, a mass, a memorial mass was offered up every year on the anniversary of his death. So here you have, um, oh goodness, you have the origin and effect of saints' days. You have the origin of the altar and the altar stone. You have the link with the traditional Catholic burial practices. And it's, and it's all wrapped up in the, in, the, in the word, the concept, and the history of relics. Hmm. Interesting. Your Excellency, I think you... Yeah, I think you gave a good, you know, small introduction there you know, to the historical context of relics because, yeah, I think this is a very vague topic. Most Catholics have a very basic, very, very basic understanding of relics. I mean, we accept yeah. their presence, but that's about where it ends, I've seen, from most Catholics. And this is one of those subjects where we use our, our famous catch line on, on Restoration Radio. You're going to have to go look it up. And I myself cannot recall hearing a sermon or a lecture on relics. And, I mean, I have gigabytes of sermons and lectures on my server. And, and, it, and it's a kind of a, a thousand-pound gorilla in the Catholic sanctuary uh, yeah, insofar as we see the relics on the altar. Some of us know about the altar stone, which we'll discuss later. We see the reliquaries, which are open during high mass. But do we really know about them and why exactly the church makes such bold use of them? You know, our Protestant friends will make us think, well, you know, this is something that, you know, the church has just made up, and, and uh, you know, this, this, is, this is very, very historical, isn't it? Oh, oh it's extremely historical, and the whole uh, cultus or the devotion to relics has played an immense role in uh, church history, and uh, it's still something which is being done or practiced today. For example, we were praying for a priest uh, the other day who had, who had um, very serious health problems and was possibly going to have to have uh, very serious surgery. And someone got a hold of a second-class relic. We'll talk about that in a moment. What that is, second-class relic of Padre Pio, applied it with prayer and great faith and devotion to this priest's leg and prayed, and uh, the MRI was taken, and my goodness, he didn't have to have the, the threatened surgery after wow. all. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, it is, uh, we, we still see 
the, the great things that are done by God through, through and for the glory of his saints and for our relief, for our help to reward us. Um, that's that kind of uh, you, what you mentioned, the idea of most people having a vague or really no idea of what relics are. That's that kind of a, of a stripped-down modern uh, Catholicism, which um, a series of shows like the devotional show, these devotional shows, is meant to oppose. One's life as a Catholic becomes impoverished. It really does. Uh, we should know the relics of the saints, and uh, we should uh, honor them in church or even perhaps where appropriate at home. Uh, there was certainly a strong tradition of Catholics having the relics of the saints themselves, sometimes carrying them with them or keeping them in the family altar at home. And many, many traditional Catholics certainly um, practice that today. Mm-hmm. So well, where should we go from here? Well, I think the the best way that we can start here is is maybe explain the biblical references for relics, since since all of the detractors want to say that well, you know, this is something the Catholic Church made up, and that uh, this is something that you you stick to as a superstition and uh, and whatnot. I think that would be a a good place to begin to start off with the biblical references. So okay, so then we would say. Um uh, as the Protestants would say, now get your Bibles out, everybody, and open it up <laughs> to the... Uh, you have a Bible, don't you, listeners? And, All of you listeners out there have a Bible, draw, right? And you get a Bible and, and, <laughs> and one of those highlighters, okay? And, uh, you know, and then flip it around, and I'm, picture me, I'm walking back and forth with my flexible, my flexibly bound Bible and my suit and tie, and I've got a handkerchief in the other hand. But remember my <laughs> You're patting your face in the other hand, because that, my friend... <laughs> Believe it or not, is an excellent example of the, a scriptural reference to a second-class relic. First of all, let's talk about the first-class relic. This is found in the second book of Kings, the story of, of the prophet Eliseus, who was the Elisha, sometimes called in modern or Protestant versions. He was the great disciple of Elias, such a very great prophet of God, who was the traditional founder of the Carmelites in the Old Testament. His... Um, his prophet, his, his, his follower, and his successor was Eliseus. He received a second-class relic from heaven, as Eliseus was taken up into heaven, that is to say, his cloak. And um, that, so that's, that's a strong reference right there to, to the use of relics. He received his cloak and honored it and worked miracles with it, including the parting of the water of the Jordan River. He... Um, Eliseus, when the time came for him to die, was buried in a tomb, and some time later, when his, when his body had decayed and there were just, there were just the, the bones left, some um, Hebrews were burying a dead man and were walking by the tomb when, at a distance, they saw Moabite raiders coming. And in their panic to flee, they didn't know what to do with the dead body. And so the, the tomb of the prophet was nearby. They opened it, and they, they threw the, the body of this deceased man into the tomb on top of the, of the, the relics of Eliseus, the prophet of God. And as soon as um, his, the dead man's body touched the bones, he rose from the dead. Wow. Relics. Mm-hmm. They didn't say a prayer. Nothing. They just he, the, the body came into con- physical contact with the relics. Uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem is probably the strongest saint for relics, and he, he is a great one for, for, for talking about their, their objective, you might say, their objective sanctity. Others, 
and, and understandably so, maybe even the, the majority, speak more about the faith or the devotion with which one would approach, keep, or use relics. But St. Um, Cyril really stresses that they in and of themselves are, are holy because this is the idea. God worked through this person, so God still today works through what is left of this person here on earth, that is to say, the relics. That's a little bit, a little bit of the argument. Um, then we're talking. Now we're talking about the handkerchiefs. Why do Protestant preachers walk up and down carrying a handkerchief? Maybe because they want to honor second-class relics. I have to say at this point, a second-class relic is something that was used by a saint. Uh, it could be indeed a handkerchief. A piece of a piece of clothing, part of their religious cassock or habit, a cross or, or a rosary, or a, a book chapel. even. That, that's right. Any investment, anything that they might have touched or used or employed in their life, these things too then become holy. Well, um, in the three distinct passages in the Acts of the Apostles, we read about God working miracles by uh, the use of handkerchiefs or cloth which had touched, uh, in this case, the skin of St. Paul, and then they were applied to the sick. And then their diseases were cured, and evil spirits departed from them. Sometimes Protestant preachers, uh, more of the, uh, of the, of the money-making variety, will actually sell prayer cloths. And, and that, of course, that's the, the idea of a prayer cloth is the Protestant version of a relic. They pray over a piece of cloth. You send the money, they send it to you. Sounds to me like a pretty commercial deal, but you will come across Protestant preachers on TV or the radio who, who offer this as a, as a, as a, as a money-making uh, endeavor. And it's a little bit, a little bit that, 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 that same idea. Um, but for us as Catholics, based on sacred scripture, uh, not, we don't believe that a magical power exists in these, in these physical things, but that God works through them because God has worked through the individual who owned or touched these things, or God has worked through the individual whose, whose bones are now, are now being honored and, and venerated. So there you have a very strong and a scriptural reference. Then after that you have the constant history of the Catholic Church, uh, down throughout the down throughout the ages, beginning as I say, with the time right after the death of the last apostle, uh, Saint John died in the 90s, and then you have about the year 100, the the relics of uh, Saint um, Saint Polycarp, then after that Saint Ignatius of Antioch, and and it just it just goes on just goes on from there. Okay, just just for our listeners, Your Excellency, I think it would be good to maybe concretely define first, second, and third class relics because you haven't spoken about a third class relic yet. But yeah. in my understanding, a first a first class relic is uh, is actually a piece of that individual's body of some sort. A second class relic would be something that they used, and a third class relic, to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is an object which has touched one of those. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, okay. With a third-class relic, if you had a third-class relic on a holy card, um, it's a bit of a stretch. But it's you think I always think in terms of well, a bolt of cloth has been touched to uh, the uh, relic of a saint, and that's probably through glass or through even through marble, I suppose, either through or wood or a sarcophagus. But in the case there's been some kind of a contact there, and then little pieces are cut maybe attached to a holy card, 
and uh, sent out. It's, it's a little bit more of a stretch. But then after all, because all of these things depend upon some physical reality and the devotion of the faith, that's how sacramentals work, the devotion of the faith of the individual who employs these, and then God's grace and God's mercy, that certainly is very respectable. For first-class relics, um, we, uh, we also include in that category uh, the relics that are connected with our Lord, that is to say, most of all, the Holy Cross, which receives a very special veneration in the Catholic Church, and um, maybe relics of his uh, infancy, so maybe you might come across sometime a relic of, of the crib of Christ, something like that. Um, and then, of course, as you say, the bones of the saints, the hair of a saint, uh, or you, and indeed perhaps even the entire, uh, the entire skeleton of a saint. And then the second-class relic would be something, as you say, that a saint used or wore a shirt, a glove, a vestment, and so forth. And then the third-class relics, as we discussed, there's a, um, a couple of special categories of third-class relics. In the old days, in, the, in Rome, Rome was always more conservative, and Rome resisted very regularly even traditional or devotional innovations. So, for example, in the East, probably because of the um, of the the frequent wars, the destruction of, of of saints' tombs, things like that, it was customary for uh, for relics to be to end up in in rather small pieces, maybe in a, a wrapped in, in cloth or in a, some some form of a reliquary. Whereas in the West, in Rome in particular. Uh, the idea was that one should never disturb the relics of the saints, and that would be the idea of opening a tomb, as is the modern Catholic practice, and taking out relics to give to the faithful or to churches or altars. That would be un- unthinkable. Saint um, Gregory the Great was uh, he was the last one to issue very strict um, laws against that. Uh, even an empress uh, asked him for the, some relics of St. Paul. And that he, he said he was sorry, but that was unthinkable. It, was, it couldn't be done. What, they, what he would do is to give out um, uh, oil, or maybe a little piece of cloth that had been dipped in oil that had burned in a lamp over the saint's tomb. That was his version of a third-class relic. Then he hmm. himself, picture this busy great pope, he himself would sit at his desk sometimes, and for any important uh, personage, he would file a little bit of the metal off the chains of St. Peter and Paul or the gridiron on which St. Lawrence was uh, grilled to death. And then he would put those in a cross and send them to someone as, as, as a gift and, and as an answer to their desire to have relics. About that same time, an unusual kind of third-class relic developed called a brandea, brandea, a, which uh, was a little, a little casket, little box, ornamented box, filled with um, cloth, maybe silks or linen, and this would be lowered down into the crypt over the tomb of Saint Peter in the Vatican, and it would stay there for a certain number of days. In other words, there would be that, that, that idea, again, of third-class relic, close proximity. And then it would be brought up again and then sent out as... In, as a, and that would, it would be considered to be a relic of St. Peter, and it would be used maybe for the consecration of churches or of altars. While St. Gregory uh, 
was uh, the last pope really firmly to forbid the idea of, in effect, sort of a holy dissecting of the corpses of saints uh, to, to make relics for, for churches and people. Nevertheless, it is said that he gave relics to St. Augustine of Canterbury for the consecration of churches, again, because you need that in order to, to consecrate the altar, the relics of two martyrs. So maybe he actually violated his own, his own rules towards the end. But what, what made Rome finally accept this was what happened centuries earlier in the East. That is to say, the incursions of the barbarians, wars, threats and dangers, so that eventually it was considered to be prudent by the 8th, 9th century to transfer the relics of the saints from the catacombs, from the cemeteries outside of the walls of Rome, and bring them in. This, by the way, is the origin of the feast day of all saints. It was the, the um, originally it was the dedication of this great pagan temple called the Pantheon, was rededicated to Our Lady, the Queen of Martyrs. Uh, and that was done on the 13th of May. <coughs> And later on, <clears throat> this feast day came, because of historical reasons, to be kept on November the 1st. That's really how we get All Saints Day. It's, it's, it's connected with the idea of bringing the relics in from the hinterlands where they were unsafe. And then now, of course, since once the tombs were opened, uh, it would be no problem to give a little little packet, uh, uh, a little reliquary of, um, of saints' relics to, to churches, really uh, throughout the world. So that's a little bit the story of, of, of how, this, how this all came about over time. Interesting. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to the Restoration Radio Network and Devotions with Bishop Dolan. Today we are discussing uh, holy relics and their history, the church's use of them, some objections and misconceptions, misunderstandings, and uh, just kind of tying it all together here to, to uh, kind of coincide with this month of November. Your Excellency, um, you know, you've, you've given a bit of the history and the genesis of, of, uh, of the use of relics. Now, I'd like to move a little bit into the church's use of them. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've talked about you know, the history of them, uh, some, some uh, miraculous cures which have been attributed to them. I mean, and it's not hard to find an individual that has some sort of miraculous story that involves a relic, which is, you know, ties right into what you were saying. But let's talk about the church's use of relics. Well, what... what function do relics serve within the context of the church itself? I mean, we, like I said in the introduction, we see, relic, uh, we see relics on the altar. We know about the altar stone, which we'll like to speak about here. Uh, and how, how are the relics stored and kept, and what function do they serve? Well, uh, let, me, let me answer your question by reading um, a quotation from the Council of Trent. Um, and it's, parenthetically, I know, listen to the quote, it's interesting how the church phrases things. So today everything has to be kind of like happy, clappy, and smiley, and positive. But Mm -hmm. we know very well that the Catholic Church is not afraid of condemning when something needs to be condemned. So listen to how the fathers of the Council of Trent phrased this. The, The Council enjoined on bishops and pastors to instruct their flocks, and this speaks to what you mentioned earlier about never having heard a sermon about it, somebody's not obeying the Council of Trent here, to instruct uh, their flocks that, the quote, the holy bodies of holy martyrs and of others now living in Christ, which bodies were the living members of Christ, and, quoting Corinthians, the temple of the Holy Ghost, and which are by him to be raised to eternal life and to be glorified, are to be venerated by the faithful. 
For through these bodies, many benefits are bestowed by God on men, so that they who affirm that veneration and honor are not due to the relics of the saints, or that these and other sacred monuments are uselessly honored by the faithful, and that the places dedicated to the memories of the saints are in vain visited with the view of obtaining their aid, all of these things are wholly to be condemned, as the Church has already long since condemned and also now condemns them. There's the C word three times in a row, condemned, condemned, condemned. That's Catholic. It is Catholic to identify error and clearly to condemn it. At the same time, you might say on the positive side, you have the Sacred Council of, of Trent enjoining the duty of preaching about the relics of the saints. So if any priests are listening, consider giving a sermon to your people sometime about the relics of the saints, a little bit about their history and about the spirituality, and about the relics that every Catholic church has, because they are to be found in the, in the altar itself. Um, the... This is, this is interesting, and it shows you, uh, by contrast, what part of what is missing from the Novus Ordo, from the New Order False Mass. Uh, every Catholic Mass must be offered over the relics of the saints as a general rule, over a consecrated altar stone, and if possible, over a, the, an, an entire consecrated altar. An altar stone is a, is a square of, of stone, about an inch and a half thick or deep, that has a, that is five crosses carved upon it, and there's a little cavity in the front of it called the sepulcher, in which the bishop who's consecrating that altar or altar stone deposits the relics of at least two martyrs. They have to be martyrs, not just other saints. Other saints may be added to it, but the, uh, the essence uh, is that, that they should be the relics of, of martyrs. And then the, the, the cavity of the sepulcher is sealed with cement. The whole is anointed in a long, very beautiful ceremony with uh, holy oil. And little candles are burned over and incense is used. Incense is also put into the little sepulcher. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very beautiful and a highly mystical rite. Where, wherever our traditional Catholics are going to Mass, there's an altar stone there. Every now and again for a traveling priest, there, would, there used to be a dispensation to use what the Eastern rite uses, which is known as a Greek corporal. And uh, that is a, a corporal or a piece of, of linen or of silk that has the relics of two martyrs sewn into it and is blessed with a special with, with a special ceremony and prayers as mm. well. So, so, so there you have it. You, you don't see it, but they're there. And why the relics of the saints? Well, there's a historical reason. The historical reason is going to take you back to um, the catacombs of ancient Rome where the masses were frequently offered over the relics of the saints in the, in, the, in the early centuries, either over their relics or very near to the tombs of the saints. And then... Uh, so that, and then that, that history continues, isn't it beautiful? The history is just it's unbroken, and it continues down throughout the centuries to us today, so far from Rome, so far from the catacombs, and from the era of the, of, of the persecutions. Hmm. Well, Your Excellency, um, I would like to kind of uh, speak a little bit about, uh, speak somewhat about my experience with this. Um, 
I've only seen an altar consecration one time, and I would encourage our listeners, if, if you have the opportunity, you should most definitely take the chance to do that and, and, to, and to see that beautiful solemn ceremony. I, I witnessed an altar being consecrated by Bishop um, Tissia de Mallory uh, some years back, and, it, and it's a very, very beautiful ceremony. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question on this real quick. Now, how does this, when you say that uh, the Mass has to be celebrated over the relics of the martyrs, now how would this equate to what we see from, like, uh, the battlefield, where you have a priest saying mass in the hood of a jeep, uh, does, do, do the same rules apply with that, or how, how does that work? Yes, the priest would have had in his mask at the chaplain, would have had either a very thin ultrastone, which nevertheless was properly consecrated with the relaxed martyrs, or in modern times, more likely, he would have had a dispensation to have the, the cloth uh, which has the relics in them and is blessed to replace an altar stone, called an antimension, which means over the table, meaning over the table of the altar in the, in the Greek, or in, in English it's referred to as a Greek corporal because it's used in the Greek or the Eastern Church. So nobody ever said Mass. You couldn't. It would be a, it would be a serious sin, except in the case of a, of, of a true emergency, to say Mass without the relics of, of the martyrs, so that, so that those who died for Christ are now associated with Christ dying, his death being made present here and now on this particular altar, so that we who are assisting, we the living, might receive the grace to imitate them. And that shows in a wonderful liturgical or symbolical sense the apostolicity of the church the, these relics take us back to the age of the martyrs to the to the very early centuries and, and most most often because they are relics from the catacombs from some of the uh, the, the, the the relics of uh, of ancient rome now then you have to contrast that you see with the novus ordo and let me let me state a startling fact that most of our listeners probably are not aware of it is forbidden in the Novus Ordo, officially, to have an altar with an altar stone and to have the little relics of the saints enclosed therein. You are obliged in the Novus Ordo to have a plain table, because why? It's an assembly and it's a meal. It is not the mystical redoing of Calvary. It is not this, this wonderful symbolical scene of the anticipation of heaven itself and the resurrection and all that. No, it's just a meal. It's an assembly. What you are allowed to do in the Novus Ordo is if you want to uh, honor the relics, uh, you want to honor some saints, whether they're martyrs or not doesn't make any difference. And if you have a recognizable bone, in other words, somebody can say, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a shin bone, or that's a tibia, or that's a femur, or that's a skull. I can see there, or those are some teeth. If you have something that's recognizable, not, not little particles such as you generally see for the relics of the saints, but something which is recognizable, you can put that under the altar, under the altar table, you can have that there as part of the consecra- their, their blessing or their, their dedication service of their tables. But you are forbidden to have an altar stone. It has to be a plain wooden or stone table to make a meal upon, as Cranmer says. Uh, and so this whole idea is, 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 is done away with and washed away. And th- therein lies the tale of the new religion. Hmm. Yeah, I remember from my days when I was at the Indole, this is some, some years ago, uh, when they would say the, they would say the traditional mass, it would be on the Novus Ordo table, and it just felt like a real cheap imitation. Well, yes, and then it wasn't even an altar. 
their mm-hmm. name Mass on a if if it was an official if if they were following the rubrics, as Father Z likes to say, um, uh, do do the red. If they were reading the black and doing the red, well then they were just saying mass on a plain old dining room table, and that of course is the point. It's the meal of the assembly. It is not the mystical uh, representation of the sacrifice of Christ. Right. Okay, Your Excellency. We've talked about how uh, how the the relics are stored in the altar. Let's let's talk a little bit about the visibility of the relics. We see relics on the altar visible to the faithful uh, in reliquaries. And perhaps for our listeners who aren't familiar with the term reliquary, you could explain what that is and what what constitutes a reliquary. But also, why why does the church find such a pressing need to to, to make these relics visible to her faithful on the altar? Yeah, that's that, that, that's a very good question. A, a reliquary um, is. Uh, any any um, vessel that is used to expose to the gaze of the faithful a part of a saint is usually part of the bone. Sometimes a hair is used too. Generally speaking, the relic of a saint is put into what looks to us like a little locket, uh, such as one might wear around one's neck. A little round locket, and that is called in the Latin a teca, T-H-E-C-A. The uh, who's ever making the relic, could be a nun or something, uh, would, uh, probably with tweezers and a little glue, attach the, the, the little bit of, of, of the relic of a saint uh, inside the locket against a background of, like a, usually it's like a red fabric, a damask, and then, it's, and then, then there's glass over it. Then the, the back is sealed with red string, such as is officially used in Rome still today for the sealing of documents. And then there is a little bit of wax uh, that's used for the seal, and an official coat of arms of a bishop, the, the bishop who is then going to sign a document uh, attesting to the authenticity of the relic of a saint. Um, sometimes people are concerned, and perhaps rightly so, is my relic of a saint, uh, I, I bought it on eBay or somebody gave it to me, is this legitimate or is this phony or false? If you look at old ones and you see how they're done up and then you look at modern ones and you see if it's in that same school or if it's obviously handmade or uh, home produced you might say then uh, I would set those relics aside as as doubtful relics as doubtful relics there was an accusation once of a by a traditional priest, both of these priests are deceased now, God rest them, and this priest was from Europe and he had done a lot of study about a priest in America who was offering many, many relics for sale. And uh, he, he was convinced, especially that his relics of St. Philomena, were not legitimate. And it's true, if you looked at them, it, it looked like they were homemade and home-produced. And so then the danger is that you're venerating, well, we, we used to say like chicken bones, or St. Saint, um, Bonasus, when this, this great English, you know, Saxon-English monk bishop went to... Uh, he reconverted uh, the, uh, the the French, actually, and the Germans, who had lapsed in sort of a quasi-paganism. He found, amongst other abuses, this is maybe the 8th century, that there was a certain character, some kind of a priest or a monk, who would actually sell his own uh, fingernail clippings as relics of the saints. Isn't that interesting? Mm. <laughs> so and that was a sacrilege and that was false. So in other words, that is to say that um, if you're worried about the authenticity of a relic, 
you might want to show it to a priest. You want to make sure that it's that it, that it has that seal on the back and that it has the, the proper look and the appearance. Every relic should have what the French call an authentic, that is to say a certificate of authenticity that, it, that itself is signed and sealed. But today, unfortunately, uh, relics and altar stones, too, have been separated from their um, authentic uh, certificates because of the, the mass destruction. After all, we have a lot of relics at our church, for example, and many of them came because faithful, the faithful found them in the garbage, just like the statues of the saints. Wow. The, the revolution that was unleashed almost 50 years ago, and you can almost say a little bit with the death of Kennedy in 63, uh, that, that sort of was a watershed moment. And from then on, things just went downhill in, in, in church and in society. And in a few years' time, the relics of the saints were thrown away. Or they were, they, because of the reliquaries themselves, of uh, being some mm, artistic value, uh, flea markets, especially in Europe, would be full of them. They would just, they would just be put up for sale. So you would find the relic of a saint in somebody's bathroom because the reliquary seemed interesting or the idea seemed mm. quaint. That's the revolution that we, that we lived through. And the Catholics at that time, even like in the 60s, or early 70s, gathered as much of these holy things as they possibly could. And so you would see the most astounding and beautiful relics and reliquaries in, in private homes, and understandably so because they were thrown out of the churches. But to go back to what a reliquary itself is, uh, Justin, so a reliquary looks like the classic reliquary that we know looks like a baby monstrance. It almost looks like a monstrance, um, but it's not to show the body of Christ, it's to show a bit of the body of a member of Christ. So it's sort of like a downscale version of that. Um, so that when you when when you you look, you can see this little locket uh, under glass, and now two 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 kinds of glass, and um, these are historically and rubrically, very appropriately put between the um, candlesticks, the six candlesticks on the altar. Other reliquaries are more in the shape of a chest. They could be sort of in the Gothic style with little spires made out of gold or they're gold-plated, but they look like a chest, and uh, the chest might have glass on it so that you can peer in. And sometimes you see, you see them done with beautiful artistry. You, one thinks of nuns you know, embroidering flowers, and uh, sometimes there's little jewels worked in, and every, uh, the calligraphy is magnificent, honoring all these, these, these uh, and exposing or showing to us so we can see and honor with a prayer or with a devout kiss, all of these relics of the saints. So the appropriate place for the relics of saints is upon uh, the altar of our Lord, because they are the members of our Lord, and they are by their death in a particular way associated with our Lord and his suffering, and they, they rest in the church near our Lord, waiting for the resurrection. And we believe that on the last day, God, by means of a miracle, will join all of these relics together, and the saints will be reconstituted, as we will be reconstituted. And it doesn't matter if we're, if we're collapsed into dust or in the case of the saints, sometimes the whole skeleton remains. And then, and then we will all be caught up again with Christ uh, in, in the air, as St. As, as Paul says, and then there will be the, uh, the general judgment. So as the prayer that I started the show with directs our attention to the, to the resurrection. So uh, it's not, it wouldn't be the right idea 
for a Catholic to say, oh, well, you know, relics of saints, that's pretty medieval and obscure, doesn't interest me. No, no. It's a, it's a testimony to the resurrection itself. And the belief in Christ's resurrection is the bedrock of Christianity. So all of these things are all interconnected. And, it, and we do well as Catholics to know our, know our faith to know our, our devotions. Because if we don't, we always run, we, we, we run the risk of, of losing it. Maybe God would remove, even as God removed the relics of the saints from all of these churches because the true faith and the true Mass was no longer practiced there. Mm. Your Excellency, just a kind of a liturgical question here. I, I've noticed this whenever I go to low Masses versus going to high Masses, and I don't know if this is the rule or if I'm just seeing things, but I'm sure some of our listeners have noticed the same things. There's a, there's a little veil that covers the top of the reliquary, which it stays closed when there's no Mass, and uh, which, is, which is being offered at the altar. But why is it that the reliquaries stay closed during low Masses and, and they're, they're open during high Masses? Is there, is there a particular reason for that? Yes, you see, there are a series of, of, of rubrics or liturgical rules that govern the, uh, the technical term is the exposing of relics to the veneration of the faithful. Uh, technically speaking, by the letter of the law, uh, relics should only be exposed for the veneration of the faithful or, or uncovered, their little veils or these little tabs sort of removed, when at least two candles are lit on the altar. And oftentimes the, the relics are exposed that way at a high mass or on a feast day to add to the solemnity or the sanctity of the, of the service. And when there is incense used at mass, the relics of the saints are, uh, after the cross of Christ itself, are incensed by the celebrant. And they, 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 the relics then receive this due homage or honor. The other rubric says that the relics of the saints ought to be covered during benediction because all of our focus at benediction is, is to be on the blessed sacrament as opposed to the members of Christ who are of course the saints so there's a little bit of um there's a little bit of a contrast you might say between the actual rubrics and their their faithful their faithful following and um the relics of the and the, and the, the relics that one would find um, maybe perpetually exposed sometimes in churches. If we have relics out, we always try at the very least to have um, to have lamps burning to to represent the candles and, and to give and, and, and to give the due respect to the relics. I remember when I first started seeing during the changes relics and sometimes even relics of the True Cross in someone's private home. You know, thinking, oh my goodness, because you know, really the relic of the True Cross should only be exposed. Uh, with two candles burning, and really only be exposed by a, by, by a priest, and it's uh, for the formal public veneration of it. But it has never been forbidden to uh, for the laity themselves to have even a relic of the True Cross of Christ. There are many examples of the relics of the True Cross being given to the to the royalty, for example, by popes in the past, or to have any relic of uh, of the saints. Indeed. We live in, a, in an era of uh, total disaster and destruction for the church. And what's, what's important is that these things should be gathered up. They should be kept in a safe, reverent way. Um, I would say the relic of the true cross, one should keep it covered, except when one is actually using it or venerating it. Um, although sometimes people would even carry a relic of the true cross with them. This, is, um, th th this could be done very, very reverently and very properly, I think. Or the relic of a saint could be carried about on, on one's person. But the, the idea is that um, 
with, if a lady possesses especially a great relic like that, you have to be conscious of that and to treat it. You know, you just wouldn't keep it in any, any old place. You'd keep it in in in, in a place of honor and mm-hmm. and show it that do that, that that due respect. For those of you just joining us, we are well past the halfway point of our program here this morning. Uh, you're listening to Devotions with Bishop Dolan on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I'm joined, as always, this morning by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, kind of segueing, I think, I think this is a good, good sort of launching point to get into this, because I think this is an area that, where there's a sea of confusion and a lot of accusations which fly from both Catholics and Protestants about the, the rules for obtaining and possessing relics. Um, you know, Catholics, uh, and there's, no, there's no warehouse to go where you can officially buy relics these days. And you, you've mentioned several times um, eBay, which uh, is probably, to my knowledge, uh, probably the most easy place to find uh, relics. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have to do your homework on them. But I would ask you, uh, knowing what you know and that you know you do use the internet, uh, number one, where are the best places to obtain the relics? And then also, as a secondary part of that, what are the rules for buying and selling them? And maybe we can get into the, the accusations of simony and things like that. Well, uh, first of all, we have to say that it has always been strictly forbidden as an act of simony, a, a terrible and a grievous, grievous sin, to sell the relic of a saint. Uh, the, the one might get around it somehow by saying, I'm not charging for the relic, I'm charging for the case. And in some cases, because the case would have a certain historical or artistic value, there would be a, a justification for that. One, one could only accept an offering. You could never sell the relic of a saint. To do that would be very wrong. Uh, that being said, it's not forbidden, indeed it could be a very devout uh, action, to purchase the relic of a saint by means of getting it out of a flea market, an antique store, or in getting it off, off eBay, so that it's not going to end up being used, God forbid, in some sacrilegious or at least highly disrespectful fashion as a curiosity and nothing more. You, one, one sees these things, and then you have to cringe. And Actually, you can go to museums, and you can, you can find in beautiful medieval reliquaries many of the relics of the saints. A visit to, a, say, like the, the cloisters in New York or the Metropolitan Museum of Art can be an actual sort of a spiritual experience. You stop and you honor and pray to the saints who are, who are kept there. So there's nothing wrong with... Um, purchasing the relics of the saints. You do have to be prudent. So eBay can be a, a very good source. As you say, you do have to do your homework on that. It's, it, it, uh, fraud is wherever there's money to be made, there's someone who is looking to make some money. And so fraud is a, fraud is a real danger with, with all of these things. Um, and possibly one would, one would consult a priest with them. As a general rule of thumb, I look upon antiquity or um, uh, and and the the external appearance of a relic as as one way of uh, of being sure. If there is a certificate, well, then the certificate itself, obviously, so. And then to open the relic in the back and to see whether or not there are those red there's that red silk uh, uh, threads and then the seal of in, in red, red wax uh, of, a, of a bishop's coat of arms, that's going to give you a, 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 a pretty good indication that that's, uh, that that's going to be a good or, or a safe choice. Hmm. Yeah, I found, uh, Your Excellency, that, that uh, when there is no certificate uh, that goes with it, it's like any other eBay purchase. I mean, generally, if the, if the seller is honest, they're going to have 
they're going to be able to explain to you how they came into possession of it, uh, maybe, yes. maybe even a little bit about its history. Um, and, and they should be, you know, a, a true and honest seller should be more than forthcoming with that, should be more than willing to answer those questions and usually post them in the description. And they should, they should also be open to answering any questions you may have on that. Yes, that's, that is certainly true. Um, so um, I, I, let me mention to our listeners a little bit about how I mentioned historically in the East and in the West how, right, almost from, really, truly from the beginning, sometime a few years after they finished, uh, St. Luke finished writing the Acts of the Apostles, you had the, the, you had the, the followers of St. Polycarp gathering his relics, his ashes. How there's a constant history beginning uh, with, the, with, the, with the prophets of Mount Carmel in the Old Testament going through St. Peter and St. Paul. And then uh, the whole history of the church. It's a wonderful apologetic exercise to consider the true church and to consider the, the truth and uh, the, the worthiness uh, and the value of, of the veneration of relics. However, there was a particular date and time when Almighty God himself, as is so often the case, uh, desired a uh, God wanted that the, the uh, devotion to the relics of the saints such as we practice it today, should begin without any hesitation or any question. And that's actually a feast day that we keep on the traditional calendar of the church. It's not kept in, um, certainly it's not in the John the 23rd, that's for sure. It is found in the traditional calendar in uh, August on the... Um, uh, on the 3rd of August, this past year, or this past uh, summer, it was fell, fell on the first Saturday, and it's called The Finding of St. Stephen, the Proto-Martyr. What's this about? It's an interesting tale of St. Stephen, St. Stephen's relics, which were lost in the year 415, being found um, Gamaliel, who was the, the, the Pharisee, who was the, the teacher of St. Paul, and who died himself as a Catholic and as a martyr, appears to a priest in, the, in a small town outside of Jerusalem where he was, he was buried and St. Stephen himself was buried. And these relics are then, by God's will, there's a, there's a series of, of, of apparitions, as often the case, uh, are then uh, found and then spread throughout, separated, and spread throughout the whole church. And St. Augustine has some wonderful and very beautiful and moving things to say about that. And many, many miracles were worked. Just as um, the 19th century, you might say, generally speaking, God desired to give a great impetus to devotion to the Mother of God, to Our Lady. And that's why there are all these uh, apparitions. So, too, in the 5th century, 415, the um, body of St. Stephen was found, and his relics were spread throughout the whole of the Christian world, and many miracles were worked. It took another four centuries or so for Rome, which is very conservative, to, to go with the program, you might say. But now, uh, now it's uh, been understood for many, many centuries, and that there, are, there are many rules and, and, and proper procedures that are followed for utter reverence, as, as we've been talking about today, in the, in the separation of relics or the possession of relics, their distribution, and um, their veneration. Another age, not our own, even the, 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 the collector's zeal that people might, with which people might approach say, the, 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 uh, the uh, eBay and the Internet. In another age, there was, a, there was such, a, 
such an overpowering sense of of the value of relics, the things that would make us smile actually occurred. For example, like uh, the Feast of St. John of Saragon, whose feast is in June, when he died, uh, two towns disputed his relics, and so his his body. And so where, where would he be buried? Where would his relics repose? And so he was put into a, and this happened more than once, the relics were, the, the body was put into a, a, an ox cart, and wherever the ox cart went, uh, without any human guide or director, then that's where the saint would be would be kept. Uh, many of the relics of the saints were actually smuggled out of Mohammedan countries. St. Mark was, uh, St. Mark and St. Um, Nicholas, Bari, the, the Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, were, uh, were both of them smuggled out of Mohammedan countries. In some cases, in the case of St. Mark's relics from uh, Egypt, he was actually buried, uh, smuggled out in a barrel of pork, knowing that the Mohammedan uh, customs inspectors would never touch pork. They would let it alone and unbeknownst to them, smuggled in the bottom was the casket with the relics of the saints. And that's how St. Mark <laughs> came to Venice. Some interesting stories. Um, someone, and then there, then there are many stories, too, of people, of monks, very often monks are the guilty parties here, attempting to steal the relics of saints and the saints themselves thwarting them. St. Nicholas of Tolentino, somebody tried to take, take his, um, a thief tried to take his right arm and so he breaks into the tomb and he removes the arm and at night and he thinks he's good, he'll take it back to his own country. It was, a, it was the idea of, of venerating the relic of the saint and, and of making one's own church or monastery a destination location. That was part of it, too, like a, a pilgrimage site. So the, 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 those were the motivations. But he, um, the, he found himself the next morning exactly after having walked all night. He found himself exactly back where he was at the beginning when he first stole the relic of the saint, and he was obliged to give it back. Uh, sometimes they didn't even wait for a saint to be entombed before this um, maybe somewhat overenthusiastic or imprudent hunt for relics would commence. Uh, one of my favorite stories is about Tomorrow Saint, the great mystic of Carmel, St. John of the Cross. Um, he was mistreated. It's typical with saints. He was mistreated like almost up to the very end. Nevertheless, either they had this idea in the back of their heads, he's a saint, or as soon as he died, the veil was, was, was withdrawn from the eyes of the, his fellow Carmelites who had been mistreating him. And one of the brothers of the monastery, as soon as St. John died, attempted to, and I think did, did so successfully, to bite off one or more of the toes of John of, of the Cross, St. John of the Cross, and there I've got it. I've got his toe. I've got his relic. That's how lively this faith was in the intercession of the saints as desired to possess a relic. That's, that takes us back to the way we started, Justin. It's, this, it's, it's part of human nature. God, you might say, made us this way. So there, there is nothing, there is nothing that is a better example of the truth of Catholicism. The only religion that comes down from God, the only religion that incorporates and perfectly explains body and soul, as the whole history and the cultus or the practice of devotion towards the relics of the saints. Mm. Well, Your Excellency, I think that's, uh, you know, not only have you given us the rules for obtaining and possessing relics, but also the transfer of relics as well. I would have never... Uh, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we, we trust that it will be done in like a little bit more peaceful way. According to canon law, the, uh, the relics of, of uh, 
what's called an um, ensign relic. That is to say, say like the whole, a whole body of a saint, those uh, large relics cannot be moved without the permission of, of Rome itself. And in the old days, according to the strict nature of canon law. One thing I should mention, too, is that sometimes since the changes... Um, they changed the rules about the distribution of relics. And at some point, maybe in the 80s, it started to become very difficult to get the relics of the saints from a so-called uh, legitimate source. I remember visiting uh, Rome for the first time in uh, Easter of 1969 and visiting the Church of Santa Presa, where there is, of course, the relic of the uh, column of the scourging of Christ, a very interesting relic mm -hmm. of our Lord's passion to visit. And that's also the church that was the, um, the cardinalatial church, the title church, as it's called, of St. Pius X. And uh, it, Benedictines took care of it. Well, there was actually a table uh, on, on, in the church, and they had out little, uh, little relics of St. Pius X, and you could make an offering. And, and they were in a little plastic container. And you could actually get a first-class relic. And they were just exposed oh, wow. like that for the pilgrims to use. And it was, it was very easy to get a hold of relics uh, until at some point during the changes. Then they, when they, they supposedly to, to, to regulate and to, and to venerate uh, the, 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 uh, the relics of the saints. But I think the idea was to limit to to say to the um, to the skeptics, the modernists, and the Protestants, look, we're gonna we're gonna cut back on all this stuff. We're gonna keep it clean. So now the only way to get a relic is is officially through the Vatican with some sort of a letter from one's bishop or one's uh, parish priest. I believe that's the official rule. Of course, there are still ways to do things because that's uh, that's human nature. Um, uh, but it, it's hard to get a hold of some of the some of the relics of the saints, and we end up with um, sometimes having to make do with uh, second or third class relics. Someone once very kindly gave us a whole chest of relics, which I have here in the, in the, in the church safe, of, from the uh, University of Louvain in, in, in Belgium. And amongst those relics are many ancient relics of the martyrs and saints that we all know from the calendar. There are some interesting, you might say, I say kind of, between, someplace between second and third class relics of the little flower of St. Therese of Lisieux. You know, she didn't leave any relics. Her, her body entirely collapsed into dust. And so there's the, what's called the sepulchral dust or the dust of the sepulchre that is collected. And if you have a relic of St. Teresa, that's, that's what it is. But there are, there are no significant bone fragments or anything like that left to my knowledge when her grave was opened as part of the canonization proceedings, the, the, the body had already uh, disintegrated into dust. God willed that for particular purposes. But I do have a little cardboard box with um, little relics, and that the nuns at Lisieux, in order to promote the devotion to their saint, were uh, like, like working like Trojans to get these relics out at a certain point before and after her canonization. So I have relics of her, of the, of the curtain, of the bed in which she died in the infirmary of, of the Carmelite monastery. Interesting, but that, but that alone, that's of interest. My goodness, you know, that's, and, and that, that, that interests people and it appeals to people. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's part of the glory of the Catholic tradition and, and really the fullness of our faith. Mm. Well, for those of you just joining us, we're, we're rapidly reaching the end of our program here, and I, um, I want to let you know we've covered in this episode um, 
we're talking about relics, and we, we've covered the origin and practice of the venerating of the relics, and the church's use of them, and the function they serve in the church. We, we talked about Protestant objections and misunderstandings about relics, and also an understanding of, rec, um, understanding of the secular sense of relics and how secular man is, is, is you know, undeniably attached to his relics. We've also covered the possession and obtaining of relics. And uh, this, is the, this is the last show in the devotions series on, uh, on our Restoration Radio for Season 2. And I wanted to give His Excellency a chance to kind of give us an overview of uh, you know, his thoughts on the season and some of, some of your thoughts going forward for listeners to carry it with him as the season comes to a close. Uh, thank you, Justin. Before I get into that, as, as, you, were, as you just mentioned, uh, something else occurred to me, which would be interesting to mention. Generally speaking, when someone objects either to a, a dogmatic point or to what we call a dogmatic fact, a truth, say, like say, Vacantism that comes from the dogma and the teaching of the Catholic Church, uh, or something about the, the traditional uh, uh, devotion of the relics in the Catholic Church, when someone makes an, some kind of an accusation, the best way to deal with it is to, is to look at it solidly, rationally, logically, and uh, scientifically, as it were, because uh, truth is truth and truth is one. And we, as unchanged Catholics, we possess the truth. A good example of that would be um, the accusation uh, against the relics of the true, the supposed relics of the true cross. John Calvin, who was a, an apostate Catholic, he had been a cleric at one point, founded his own religion. Uh, the Presbyterians are the remnants of that today. John Calvin wrote a book on relics, attacking the, uh, the, the so-called superstition of relics, and uh, claimed that there would be enough relics of the true cross of Christ to, to build a ship with. Well, someone actually measured all of the acknowledged and true relics of the cross of Christ and came up that, you, that there is uh, weighed them figured out what the weight would be, and the weight is a little bit over one kilogram, one kilogram point seven, I believe, is, is, is the measurement. So once you look at something in a calm, quiet, dispassionate way, you always come back to Catholic truth. You, you just, you know, you're not going to get very far from it. And of yeah, course, we'll when, people want, when they want to argue, you know, they're going to insult you, and they want you to get excited and insult them back again. But I think that one of the... Um, Distinguishing characteristics, actually, of Restoration Radio and its and its uh, its approach, as well as that of some of my esteemed conference, Bishop Sanborn, Father Chicada, is to take that very scientific, calm, and and in the correct understanding, rational approach, and even polite, to 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 point to point out what the truth is, and you see the meaning of our Savior's words: "Veritas liberabe vos." The truth will make you free. The truth always does. Um, now, about devotions themselves, uh, there are so many of them, and this is truly unfortunate, which are unknown to us. As you mentioned today, as we're talking about today, many Catholics don't have too much of a sense of what a relic of a saint is, which are unknown or unpracticed. One always has that lingering fear, will, they just, will this just die out? Um, that's, that's unfortunate. So I think that this series has served a good purpose. I hope it's, it's wet people's appetites not only to learn more about some of the topics we've covered in our shows this season, Justin, but also to um, learn more about other devotions which we really haven't even spoken about. Our um, esteemed uh, founder of uh, Restoration Radio, Stephen Heiner, uses the phrase, uh, 
the Catholics don't want to, quote, eat their spinach, that is to say, to do the, the solid work of eating your vegetables, and that which is controversial, that which is of the moment, that which is exciting. Did you hear that Bergoglio just appeared with a clown nose? Oh, boy, let's do a show. That's appealing. You'll get people who will listen to that. But maybe for some of the basic foundational work of, in this case, Catholic life, which is that of devotions, there isn't quite so much interest. Just as you can get people to come to a speech or a meeting about something, but you probably wouldn't get them to come to a holy hour or to a mass about something. Catholics are mm-hmm. funny, are funny that way. That, too, is, uh, is part of uh, human nature. But when it comes to devotions, it's uh, truly, there, there are so many devotions in the Church, we haven't even begun uh, to, to talk about the, the, all of the major ones so far. There is something for everyone. There's, a, there's an immense richness that you see in them of our Catholic faith. And remember, the idea of all these devotions is this, that you would find something that works for you, that appeals to you, that helps you, and it takes you to what? Well, it takes you to the very basics of your faith. It takes you to, to the vows of your, your baptism. Again, if you look at the Latin of the word devotion, it comes from the, the Latin word devovere, to literally to swear or to vow ourselves over to God, to the service of God, which our godparents did in our name for most of us, if we were baptized as infants, at the font, to renounce Satan and his works and his pomps, and to put on Jesus Christ and to, and to lay off uh, the, the evil and the wickedness of sin. Our devotions are meant to increase and to stir up the singular, our devotion, our devotion of Christ. Uh, you see that in particular perhaps with the, 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 the very powerful modern devotion to the um, Immaculate Heart of Mary, but um, you, you see it as well in the topic that we've been talking about this morning, about the, the devotion to the, uh, to, to the saints. Uh, the idea is that by means of the richness of all of these devotions, that we will know, love, and serve Almighty God better. Ours is not a cold, rational, or disembodied religion. Ours is an incarnational religion. God became a man. God has a family. God, by baptism, an exterior ceremony with an interior meaning and grace, has made us members of his family by means of, uh, of holy baptism. So the idea of devotions, far from being a sort of an exotic extra for those who are so attracted for one reason or another, for those who feel like, oh, they need it, but I don't need it. I've got my dogma, and I don't need anything else. Thank you very much. No, the idea of devotions is that for all of us, we, we, need, we need the fervor and we need the, uh, the spiritual assistance that the Holy Ghost has put into all of these inspired, church-approved practices, which we call the devotions. So the devotions are not extra. The devotions uh, take us to the very heart of matter. Are the devotions spinach? Is it something like, you know, forcing the kids to eat, eat their vegetables at the table when they're little? I don't know. For... Uh, it could be a question of one's age, but the devotions, once you get into them, once you learn about them, you see their beauty and their history. There's something for everybody in almost every devotion. 
And this something for everybody is going to help you to be a better Catholic. And at the end of the day, as I say today, at the end of the day, that's what really matters. How can I know, love, and serve Almighty God better in my true, unchanged Catholic faith? Well, I think that's a great book in your excellency to this uh, to this series, this season. And um, just from a personal personal point of view, I want to tell you, your excellency, it's been a quite an honor and a privilege to share this season with you on this show uh, on devotions, which really, as far as I know, is is the only show available uh, on the entirety of the internet which has been devoted to this subject. Uh, it's it, it's a very very uh, uh, I would almost say it's a it's a subject which has a deficiency of information on it out there today, especially for people mm-hmm. who are trying to hold the Catholic faith. So, Your Excellency, I thank you, and I thank all of our clergy you know, for your time, your show preparation, which might I remind our listeners, uh, and we're going to discuss a little bit about this on Friday's uh, year-end show, that you know, when, when our guests come on these shows, there is an immense amount of show preparation for this, and it, and it does require a lot of their time. And I, I hope all of our listeners are appreciative of this and don't take it for granted. I know we certainly don't here. So, Your Excellency, thank you for your generosity of your time to be with us through this season and, of course, next season. You're welcome. It's, it's always a pleasure. And in closing, let me say that if there is something that we missed in this devotional series, if any of our listeners have any ideas about devotions or even some other topic which they would like to see treated on Restoration Radio, uh, I'm sure that one way or another in some sort of a context it could be addressed. And obviously, we do indeed uh, look forward to and, and welcome your, your input, your questions, and your interest. The idea is to how can we spread our Catholic faith better. So if you've got any any way that you can help us to do that, obviously by your contributions uh, to Restoration Radio, but as as well by uh, any suggestions that you might make or questions that you have, by all means, do be forthcoming. Absolutely. Well, Your Excellency, thank you so very much, and we will talk to you next season. Very welcome. God bless you then. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, we at the Restoration Radio Network would like to ask us, His Excellency just mentioned, if you find this show to be of value to you, that you would please consider making a small donation to our apostolate. Uh, this coming Friday, we're going to have our year-end show. Uh, it's going to be a, kind of a marathon show where we discuss your comments to us on, on the survey that was posted earlier this year. And uh, we're also going to be unveiling a whole host of new shows coming up for Season 3. So uh, there will be a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss. We're going to take some of your calls. And all the hosts from this season, Stephen Heiner, myself, Nicholas Wansbutter, and Maggie Zapp will be on the show to kind of discuss our thoughts and, and uh, certainly your comments. So if you have any questions or comments, we would like to hear from you. You can feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, which is at True Restoration, or you can always contact us via email at mail at truerestoration.org. So we would ask for your support. We ask for your prayers. We ask for you to pray for our clergy. And uh, also, uh, you know, these, these clergy are always taking mass stipends to help support themselves, and I think there's an obligation there. In fact, I know there's an obligation there for us to certainly take care of our clergy. So uh, it's been my privilege to be here with you this season, and we look forward to seeing you next season on the Restoration Radio Network.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.